I am Caleb Burrow, and this is the Heir of Grievances podcast. No one can define my God, but I see grace in everything. I do know that His name is love, a love we've named absurdity. Well... This week is another solo episode. Half of you are probably just tearing your hair out in anger with me. You can leave me a voicemail and let me know how mad you are. That's a good idea. I just made it up. But today I have some great interviews, such as with doctors, professors, Stephen Shakespeare, Jacques Derrida, John Caputo... Unfortunately, it is not myself who is interviewing these people. I am just pulling clips, guess what, from YouTube. I think it's going to be fun. I think we're going to have a great time. We're going to have a lot of fun today. I'm going to kind of trace this idea of deconstructionism from its root in philosophy and kind of follow it down through its application in theology. And so we're going to start at the beginning, where it came from, who coined this term, deconstruction. And deconstruction is the underlying kind of theme behind this podcast. I myself went through, and am still to an extent going through, a stage of deconstruction. And as we learn from Jacques Derrida, the philosopher who coined this phrase, or at least the phrase was coined around him, deconstruction has a very ironic attribute in that it is never-ending. And Derrida himself has made some allusions to the kind of joke behind deconstruction in that once you go, for example, from white to green, let's say you deconstruct white to green, then in the work of deconstruction, you have to deconstruct the green and you end up back with white and you're in this endless loop, endless circle. And that's just kind of the cycle of it. And it's not devalidating. It doesn't make the whole process not worth it. But it's never-ending. And so that's something that is important to realize. And sometimes you have to go through all those steps. Sometimes you have to go through that color shift in order to realize, oh, I'm back to where I started. But hopefully you've learned something along the way. And so first off, today we're going to learn a thing or two from Professor Stephen Shakespeare, who is a well-acclaimed author, professor of philosophy, and a bit of a theologian himself. He is a writer for a UK publication called The Modern Church, Deeper Understanding of Christian Faith, which is a bit of a liberal theological perspective offered by the Brits those redcoats. He's a redcoat, so you gotta quarter him in your house if he comes a-knocking. Anyhow, we're gonna hear from Stephen Shakespeare on his take on Derrida just to get some background information, and then we're gonna launch straight from that. We're gonna connect some dots here today, essentially. We're gonna connect some dots from Derrida to John Caputo and see the application of deconstruction in philosophy and in theology, find out its roots and its modern usage, and also learn the parallels between deconstructionism and postmodern theory. 
which I think John Caputo does a great job of explaining, and I had not even seen these parallels before, and I had not thought of postmodernism in the way that he puts it, and I think he does a great job of that, but that is coming up soon. First, we're going to start with a bit of a background history on Jacques Derrida, who was a modern philosopher and passed away actually rather recently. He had contact with John Caputo, and John Caputo was a very heavy and notable influential figure in Peter Rollins and his perspective, philosophy, worldview, and theology in his establishment and growing of the modern radical theology and pyrotheology movements. And so let's go ahead and hear a little something-something from Stephen Shakespeare. Jacques Derrida is a very, very interesting thinker of the 20th century. And certainly the, the rumour mill has surrounded Derrida. He's been allied with relativism and the whole idea that he's attacking truth and abandoning truth and we're trapped within language. And all of these ideas have been attributed to Derrida, I think, without much close reading of his text. His own biography, he's born in the 30s in what is now Algeria. He's a French citizen, but still has that kind of Algerian Jewish community heritage and background, which influences, I think, quite a lot of his perspectives upon his work as almost an outsider to the mainstream, somebody who has experienced colonialism and anti-Semitism firsthand. And I think these experiences clearly mark something of his work which I think partly is driven by an attention to what is marginalised by philosophy, by the big discourses of Western theory, trying to expose us to some of the difficult and hidden troubling margins, the underside, if you like, of our thinking. He does draw on his heritage in more explicit ways. I mean, certainly his engagement with Judaism and later with Christianity, I think, are informed very much by his autobiography, his affection for St. Augustine, a fellow North African, as he sees him, his use of Jewish motifs and Jewish poetry, I think are very much part of the mix of what makes him a fascinating thinker for a religious and theological perspective, as well as, if you like, a purely philosophical or literary perspective, which are the other ways in which he's read. He takes on some of the established philosophical standpoints and schools of his time, like structuralism and phenomenology, Heidegger, psychoanalysis, and gives them his own distinctive reading. The early writings about negative theology come from this phase. At an early stage, he's engaged with religious and theological motifs and thinking. It's been very interesting to see Derrida more and more taken on board by religious and theological thinkers. And one thing I've mentioned in my published work is the occasion when he visited the American Academy of Religion Conference, where he was interviewed by other philosophers like John Caputo and a fascinating kind of conversation about themes of prayer faith, witnessing, negative theology, mysticism, the messianic, all of which are increasingly important themes in Derrida's work as he goes through his career. Very cool. Very eloquent. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome, Caleb. See? Told you. I had some good interviews today. I was actually able to dig up a clip from the interview that Stephen Shakespeare alludes to in which John Caputo himself interviews Jacques Derrida. And so I think this is a very, very cool clip, and I cannot wait to share it with you guys. Here it is. In the Circonfession, you say that you rightly pass for an atheist, instead of just saying that you are an atheist. Now, why don't you just say, I am an atheist? Is it because you have some doubts about the distinction between atheism and belief in God, or some doubts about whether you are an atheist? 
I am not simply the one who says I. And on the other hand, I think that we may have some doubts about the distinction between atheism and belief in God. If the belief in God doesn't go through a number of atheistic steps, that is, not only the critique of idolatry, but against the critique of, of ontotheology, the reappropriation of God in metaphysics. So if one doesn't go as far as possible in the direction of atheism, one doesn't believe in God. So the true believers know that they have to run the risk of being radical atheist because it doesn't interpret God as an existing being. God is not an absolute being. So if you go through what we know under the name of negative theology, apophatic, philosophical criticism and deconstruction, if we don't go as far as possible in the direction of this atheism, the belief in God is naive and totally inauthentic. Now, in order to be authentic, the belief in God must be exposed to the absolute doubt. And I know that the great mystics are experiencing this. They are experiencing the death of God or the disappearance of God, the non-existence of God. I pray to someone who does not exist in the strict metaphysical meaning of existence. That is, to be present as an essence or a substance, the good, in Plato's terms, being beyond being, if I believe in what is beyond being, then I believe as an atheist in a certain way. Believing implies some atheism, however paradoxical it may sound. And I, I'm sure that the true believers know this better than others, that they experience atheism all the time. And this is part of their belief. So in this epoche, in this suspension of belief, suspension of the position of the existence of God, faith appears, is the only possibility, is faith in this epoche. So when I say I rightly pass for an atheist, I know that because of everything I have done so far in terms of, let's say, deconstruction and so on and so forth, I have given a number of signs of my being a non-believer in God in a certain way. And nevertheless, although I confirm that it is right to say that I'm an atheist, this would sound obscene to say, I am. I wouldn't say I am an atheist, I wouldn't say I am a believer either. This statement, which I find absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous. Say, I am, I know that I am a believer. Who knows that? Who can affirm and confirm this, I am a believer? And who can say I'm an atheist? I just write such sentences. <laughs> and that's the only thing I can say. Wow. Words from Jacques Derrida's mouth. Very, very interesting. Allow me to do a little bit of uh, translating for you and show off my knowledge of the French language. Pardon my French. The word atheism is atheism, just so you know. Oh, that's an accent. That's not translating, actually. That's, that's just clarification. So anyway, not to mislead or untoot my own horn there. Probably shouldn't have brought that up in the first place. Me, I'll edit it out. I'll edit it out. No big deal. I really, really like how Derrida phrased everything that he phrased in his very thick French accent. I hope that you could keep up with that. And I know it was a low recording quality, but his concept that, and you hear this echoed in Peter Rollins a lot of the times, the idea that nobody really knows what exactly they believe. And Science Mike also has made allusion to the fact that 
if you isolate the left brain and the right brain, sometimes you can, you can find out in people that one half of their brain may believe in God fully, truly, and the other half of their brain may not believe in God. What is up with that? That's craziness. That's madness. But I can really relate with what Derrida was saying there. I have not, of course, gone to the extreme that he proposes is necessary for one to assert an actual belief in God. But during my time of stepping away from religion and pushing against religion and honestly rejecting Christianity specifically, during that time I acquired experiences and perspectives and stepped out of the skin that I had been inhabiting for over 20 years and was able to see my old self from the outside and acquired a perspective that I had not had before. And now, coming back to Christianity, my faith is so much stronger and so much more real and so much more, I want to say waterproof, um, just because I've been to an extreme Maybe not quite the extreme that is laid out by Jacques Derrida in that interview. But I've been to an extreme pushing against God, pushing away from God, and, you know, stepping outside of that box. Stepping outside of my own skin, stepping out of my own shoes. Not literally. I still have, you know. You know. But my faith would not look like what it looks like if it were not for those experiences. And yes, now I do have more skepticism. Now I do have more doubt and I love how Derrida ends that interview with his reference to the mystics, to the fact that in any true believer, there is an element of atheism. And I resonate with that 100%. Especially reading the Old Testament, I have to ask myself, well, okay, we see all these stories about God's hands-on involvement. Where is God now? Where is God? And as Derrida refers to the death of God, the absence of God. I pray to something that does not exist in a physical or metaphysical sense. And John Caputo takes that kind of a step further and restates and clarifies that concept a bit by saying that God does not exist, but God insists, making God an event of love. In John Caputo's perspective, it seems to me, just in my understanding of his perspective, that love is not this absolutely concrete existing force, but is rather something that we muster up, we summon, we call into being. And so we call God into being in our acts of love, in those events. And so, yeah, I just really resonate with what Derrida had to say there. And I do still consider myself to be an agnostic Christian in the mystical sense and in the literal definition of agnostic, meaning not knowing. And that's the beauty of God is you cannot put God in a box. If you try to put God in a box, you're creating an idol. You are trying to contain the uncontainable. You're trying to label that which cannot be labeled and that which cannot be fully comprehended especially by a bunch of primates who are just tapped into some sort of otherworldly, other-dimensional consciousness. Call it the breath of God, if you will. To me, 
God is so huge. God is so much bigger than anything we could ever even attempt to wrap our minds around. And that is why, in my experience, mysticism is essential. And coming to terms with the fact that we can never know. And to me, that's beautiful. Alex pointed out in my interview with him, if you've heard that one, um, I believe from episodes five and six, that such a perspective is almost like not wanting to know how a magician does his magic trick. Well, I think that this is real magic. And so I can try and try and try to understand how the trick is done and to look behind the veil, as it were, uh, to uncover the Wizard of Oz. That was a really stupid reference. Uh, But to me, that is miraculous. It's magic, which means really when it all comes down to it, is unknown, is phenomenal. Let's call magic phenomenal. And my take on miracles right now, my understanding of miracles right now, is that everything is a miracle. I don't believe that, it just doesn't make sense to me that God would press pause on time and violate God's own laws of physics, of science, which we do not fully understand, which we do not know. You know, we're getting closer and closer, but to ever say, to ever assert that we have fully figured something out is just foolishness. And years down the road is always proven to be foolishness and to be prideful and to be haughty. Haughty with a body. And so God as a mystery with a capital M is the only way that I can approach God. But I experience God. I experience the love of God. And one of the reasons that I say that maybe I haven't traveled to that full extent of atheism described by Derrida is because even during my protest and my rebellion against Christianity, I still could not shake the feeling of the presence of the universe as a conscious entity. I still could not shake the feeling of guidance and love and reassurance. And I couldn't shake the feeling of the presence of God. No matter how hard I pushed against and rebelled, I could not shake that feeling. And yeah, I dove into atheism as a concept and entertained it and explored it fully. And yet still, I can't claim to have gone to that full extent because I've never been without that feeling of the presence of God for, well, for more than uh, maybe a week or so. And then it pops back up again through things like, like synchronicity. And, you know, we can debate days and days whether or not that is a phenomenon that is invented, that you don't see it unless you're looking for it that it is the result of the human brain looking for patterns maybe where there are none and then inventing some. But I have had spans of time, as I have mentioned before, where I did not believe in God and still considered myself a Christian and was still a member of a Christian body and Christian church. And just God was not real to me. I didn't see God. It didn't make sense to me. And then Boom, I just got smacked upside the head and God burst back in and said, here I am. So sometimes I feel like I'm echoing the Psalms. I feel like I'm echoing David and saying, and even echoing Jesus on the cross. 
and saying, God, where are you? Where are you? I don't see any pillars of smoke. I don't see any fire coming down from the sky. I don't see any burning bushes. I don't hear any booming voice. God, where are you? And so relying on such things gets me personally nowhere. Anyhow, now we're going to hear from John Caputo, the voice that you heard at the beginning of Derrida's interview. And we're going to hear what he has to say about deconstruction, about philosophy, about postmodern thought. And we're going to start with his general take on things and him defining a few things and then get more specific. And I will intersperse a few comments here and there as we go along. But first off, this is John Caputo kind of defining deconstruction and postmodern theory. When you emphasize differences, there's a celebration of difference. It's not divisive difference, but a kind of affirmation of difference. And people come into a conversation with a host of presuppositions. They come into interpersonal contact with their own presuppositions. And that's not a bad thing, right? Because it's what you bring into any exchange. Your own questions, your own concerns, and your own interests, and your own ideas. And that's what makes life interesting for you. But at the same time, the structure of a conversation is to recognize that the other person is doing the same thing. And postmodernism is a theory that says people come from different places with different concerns and different presuppositions. And the value of conversation is to let your own presuppositions be put into question. Insofar as you live in a sort of isolated way, you live like an island and you never encounter anything different, then your presuppositions harden and take root and they're hard to shake. And so postmodern theory deconstruction is a theory that tries to keep you in a state of disequilibrium. What I like to call optimal disequilibrium. If you have pure disequilibrium, you're just going to fall over, right? So you want a kind of optimal disequilibrium, which keeps you on your toes. And so the way that people can interact with one another is for each of them to understand the differences in their presuppositions and to expose themselves to one another and hear, hear the way you are heard and hear the way you are seen by other people. So the very nature of deconstruction and postmodern thinking generally is putting your own presuppositions at risk. And the more contact you have like that, then the more your own thinking can be reshaped and reformed and grow and move forward. And that's what deconstruction is, you know. It's this kind of willingness to make yourself vulnerable in the face of the other and willingness to have unspoken presuppositions exposed. And there isn't any other way to do that than with real contact and real exposure. You have to be willing to go into a conversation with the presupposition that you have something to learn that you didn't know before that's going to change you and maybe throw some things into confusion for you that you thought were settled and in place. And that's productive. You could think of deconstruction as a kind of destructive construction. It breaks things up in order to build new things. It's a process of renewal and reform and re-envisioning and rethinking and preparing to be unprepared, preparing to be surprised. So this is a paradoxical structure. You You have to be ready to be surprised, which you can't quite do, but it's that kind of paradox that makes the exchange productive, I think. Caputo's definition of postmodern theory there is starkly different 
from that which I was taught by the church, which is essentially that postmodernism is synonymous with moral relativism. It is far from this idea of saying that there is no such thing as absolute truth, but rather saying there is not a relativism to morality, but a relativism to perspectives, to cultural and individual perspectives. Perspective does not necessarily even have to interact with or overlap with morality. It does often, it often will, and maybe at most times will, but appreciating the perspective and experiences and lived experiences and learned life lessons, which I believe is the definition of wisdom, appreciating the wisdom from another person is a perspective and a worldview, which I can absolutely get behind and embrace. I retroactively embrace that. That defines my experiences and the conclusions I've come to and the worldview I've come to and the approach that I've come to with dealing with people and new thoughts and new ideas. That objectivity. I used to be for years obsessed with this concept of chasing after real, true objectivity. And I think that postmodern theory, when laid out and defined like that, really wraps up and sums up what I was trying to get at whenever I was always going on about objectivity, objectivity, really just seeking after a true, fully developed, fully embraced perspective of objectivity. Next, we're going to hear what John Caputo has to say about the cross specifically as an enigma, as a symbol. This is very interesting, and I think that you'll enjoy this. Keep an open mind as we listen to John Caputo dissecting the cross historically as a symbol in Christianity. The cross has long been a symbol of Christian imperialism. In this sign, we conquer. So what starts out as a symbol of a unjustly persecuted man, where God's favor is on the side of the persecuted, ends up. On the other side. So the cross has an inherent ambiguity. Most things do. There's hardly anything that is so absolutely stable that can't become its opposite in a different context. That's also part of postmodern theory. It recognizes that things are very, very contextual. And something which works this way in one context can actually become the very opposite in another context. And that's certainly true of the cross. And James Cohn is deeply appreciative of that. So he talks about the white Christ and the black Christ. The white Christ gave us slavery and the Ku Klux Klan and it told black people, turn the other cheek. And the black Christ and the black cross is precisely the opposite. It's the solidarity of God with the oppressed. And so... The resurrection is also a symbol of insurrection against oppression. It's a focal point of liberation theology, which Cohn is making use of liberation theology, where the cross becomes what a German theologian named Johann Baptist Metz calls the dangerous memory of suffering. Dangerous to who? Dangerous to the one who's causing the suffering. All the power of resistance is embodied in the cross. In just the same way, in a different context, in different hands, it can be a symbol of oppression. In philosophy, we call that hermeneutics, which is that things don't have a simple, fixed sense. They're subject to interpretation. The circumstances of the interpretation can shift things profoundly, which happens all the time, you know, every day in the newspaper when somebody's quoted out of context, right? So the cross, like everything else, needs to be understood contextually. You need a good understanding of the history of Christianity and of the history of the interpretations of the cross. 
Wow, yeah. I don't really have much to say, much to contribute after that one. That was great, yeah. Hey, thanks, Jack. Uh, No problem, Caleb. Uh, That wasn't a very good impression at all. Next, as this interview with Caputo continues, we're going to hear him talk about the Bible as a living text and how we should approach reading the Bible, translating it, and applying it. And this, of course, is a great foundation and influence in modern radical theology and in the progressive church. And I like how he kind of comes at it from both sides. You'll hear what I mean. Here's John Caputo. Here we go again. If you don't come to it from the basis of your own experience, it won't do anything for you. If you're not being addressed by it, if you don't come under the power of the text, it speaks to our experience. and We bring our experience to it and submit ourselves to its power. So on the one hand, you've got to be able to do that. On the other hand, you don't want to be anachronistic. So you don't want to read into an ancient text something that's 2,000 years later. One of the things you need to do is to try to reconstitute the text in its original context so that you've got a sense of who the original audience was, what was the original circumstances, who wrote it, when did they write it, who were they speaking to, what were they trying to say. All those things belong to trying as best you can to reconstitute the original setting. That's the beginning. That can't be the end. And so I don't agree very much with original intention readings of anything, the scriptures or the U.S. Constitution or anything else. I think that's the beginning of understanding. It's not the end of understanding. The ultimate point of going back to this text at all is its ability to speak to our experience now and to tell us something about our lives in a way that the text itself couldn't possibly have anticipated. When a text can't do that, when a text can't speak anew, in a new situation to new concerns, it's because it's so time-bound that it can't get recontextualized. Once the context changes, it just dies. And so what you call a classic is a text that is capable of recontextualization again and again and again. Now, that doesn't mean anything goes, and it doesn't mean you can say anything you want, and it doesn't mean you can make the text say anything at all. It means that the text is never contractible to a single normative meaning. It's got an original power that is a potentiality. Think of a text like a musical score. There's no music there until somebody plays it. And the reader, the interpreter, is the player of the text. What does the Bible say? Well, put the book in front of you and listen. As long as you sit there, it's not going to say anything. You've got to read it. And to read it is to interpret it. And to interpret it is to bring to bear your concerns and questions and issues. I love how he emphasized approaching the Bible as trying to understand it in the context that it was originally written, in the culture it was originally written. I've been on about this before plenty of times. But then he, he takes that a step further and almost comes at it from another angle and says that it doesn't stop there and goes into the modern application of it. And then he kind of anticipates some dissenting voices and some arguments against what he said or some, maybe some questioning of what he said and talks about how that does not mean that we can just interpret the Bible however we want. We can read into it 
whatever message we want. He just did a great job of laying that out and of really, really covering all the bases. You can tell that he's been at this for a while. And I, yeah, wow. Good job, John. Great. Thank you, Dr. John Caputo. Jack, Jackie boy. Here's Johnny. I think that religious traditions are polymorphic, you know, and that God's imagination is not limited to Christianity. That's one way to put it. There are multiple ways for God to express God's being. And so the way in which I would like to see conversions take place, if conversions are going to take place, is by the example of Christian virtue. By enacting the Sermon on the Mount, someone else would be touched by that. And you might never have said a word to them about becoming Christian or Jesus or anything else. But they would be so touched by your example that they would be themselves moved to embrace a Christian way to be. I love that perspective on conversions. I guess it's really a response to evangelical witnessing. I just, yeah, I love that response. And I love his phrase that God's imagination is not limited to Christianity. Wow. I'm just going to sit on that one for a while. It's a good one. This idea of proselytizing and getting out there, and I used to do this in my old church, in my Southern Baptist church growing up, standing on the side of the sidewalk, handing out pamphlets, preaching, Jesus is coming, you're going to hell, you got to change your ways. A lot of times on college campuses in the first day of school, you'll see pastors up on a stage trying to convert people, trying to be heard by people who don't want to hear. I love Caputo's take on conversions and on living as an example. Christ didn't go into his interactions with people. You know, he said he came to seek and save the lost, the sick. And he didn't go into those interactions beating them over the head with A, B, and C. You need to say this prayer. You need to do this and this and this. You need to have your ducks in this exact row or else. He went into it relationally. Building relationships. I believe that is the only and the most effective way to follow Christ's example of missions. And, you know, we get hung up on this idea of preaching the gospel. Maybe we misunderstand that as a church and as a culture. But living as an example. Actions speak louder than words. As, of course, Jesus said. JK. JK. But actions do really speak louder than words. And living as an example. And... Hey, here we go. Let's do let's use some Christianese here. Letting the Holy Spirit open opportunities, open doors, creating opportunities and not trying to force those doors open, not trying to force a door where there is a wall, not trying to cut a hole in the wall and make a door where there ain't one, but being led by the Spirit, being led by your conscience and by life and by your experiences and allowing the situation to present itself naturally, authentically, and then taking advantage of it. And if you're asked questions, answering them. If you're not asked questions, not answering them. But trying to live as Christ, trying to be Christ to others. And I love his example of us living the Sermon on the Mount. That sums it all up right there. Next up is Caputo talking about the kingdom of God and American politics. As always, I will provide you with the exact URL where to find this on YouTube in the show notes. This is the last clip that we have from him, and 
yeah, it really kind of speaks for itself, just like the rest of his clips do. He's so eloquent, and yet he's he brings things down to a level of comprehension. A lot of his work is based upon Derrida, and he references Derrida a lot. But Derrida speaks philosopher. Caputo also speaks philosopher, but he knows how to translate and edit his messages for the layman, for the common person, and to explain himself in such a way that is at least approachable, even if it's not initially understandable and fully comprehensible, even if it takes a couple of listens to get it. I think Caputo does a great job of laying things out in a way such that it's approachable and understandable for anybody. So here he is on the kingdom of God and American politics, and there's a connection there. And let's hear what he has to say. The Gospels are the first will be last, and the outsiders are in. Jesus says pray in private. And so the whole thrust of the Gospels is the opposite of the way of the world as opposed to the way of the kingdom of God. The way things are done in the kingdom of God is not the way things are done in the world. The same thing's true in politics. What I think is we are endangering right now is muscular politics. And that's destroying, let's say, the soft political power that the United States has always had as a place of freedom and openness and multiplicity and multi-ethnic diversity. It's a place people want to come, not because we're coercing them, but because they want to be here because that looks like a wonderful place to be. So it's the soft power of the example of American democracy is its greatest strength. Oscar Romero and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Bush Tutu again and again and again. Soft power, weak force. It's genuine power. It's genuine force. But it's not force and power the way the world knows force and power. To start exerting muscular power, it's going to make us look like thugs. Another great perspective from John Caputo. I don't like getting too political on the show. Of course, there was that episode with my brother Nick that was nothing but political. And I do honestly feel like some of these clips that I've played from John Caputo kind of address that episode that I had with Nick and kind of address that perspective and maybe even clarify some of my perspective on diversity And that last clip definitely straight up calls out America as an open and loving place and ideally as a soft form of power in its love and openness. So to wrap the episode up, I'm going to play some Peter Rollins for us. I feel like that kind of ties a neat knot in this kind of web that we've been weaving here. Derrida... Obviously, was a huge influence on John Caputo. John Caputo was a teacher and mentor and massive influence on Peter Rollins. And Peter Rollins is a huge influence on me. And so I would like to play first Peter Rollins on the resurrection. He has just such a fresh perspective on Christianity. He just approaches the whole thing and redefines the terms in such a way that is so refreshing to me. My mantra always used to be, what matters is how I'm living my life and how I am loving people around me. And Peter Rollins just puts that concept into words in a way that nobody else can. And so here's his take on the resurrection, and I'm going to follow that up with his more general take on what Christianity is. And so we're kind of going to look at the micro, at a specific application, and then we're going to look at the macro at his more general philosophy approaching theology. 
Last time I was in Grand Rapids, I was speaking at Calvin College. It was a five-hour session, a debate, and near the end, somebody said to me, he said, you know, Pete, all of this theology, you, know, you don't say much about this resurrection. Do you deny the resurrection? I went, okay, this is time to fess up. Yes, I do. Of course I do. Everyone who knows me knows I deny the resurrection. I do deny the resurrection. Every time I do not serve my neighbor, every time I walk away from people who are poor, I deny the resurrection every time I participate in an unjust system. And I affirm, and I affirm the resurrection every now and again. When I stand up for those who are on their knees, I affirm the resurrection. When I cry out for those people who have had their tongues torn out, when I weep for those people who have no more tears to shed, that is what we are trying to do. Substantive change. Thank you. All right, lastly, here's that last clip from Peter Rollins. We're going to wrap up the episode with this clip. This is Dr. Peter Rollins on what Christianity is, what it looks like, how it is to be applied. Maybe not what Christianity is in the minds of the vast majority of people who consider themselves Christians, but what it is maybe ideally, definitely what it is to him and what it can be to so many other people and and what it is to me. This is what it is to me and it's what it's been to me far long before I even started listening to Peter Rollins, before I knew the name Peter Rollins. And yeah, God put him in my path, I guess. And I love how he says this. I love his take on this. So let's not waste any more time and let's hear from Peter Rollins one last time. Well, for this episode, I'm you're gonna you're gonna if you're gonna keep listening to this podcast, you're gonna probably hear a lot more quotes from Peter Rollins. So, for one last time, this episode, Peter Rollins. Those who defend Christianity and those who attack it generally agree as to what Christianity is. It's about a belief in God and the universe. It's about the belief that there is a lost harmony and the idea that we can reestablish that through a relationship with Christ. What I want to argue is that this is a wrong reading of Christianity that it has nothing to do with what you believe, and rather it's about an invitation into a type of life in which we can embrace a lack of harmony. We can embrace difficulty and suffering as well as joy and love, that we can embrace unknowing, doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. In the Hebrew scriptures, it says that Adam and Eve are walking around and have free access to everything except for one tree. And so they want the fruit of that tree. They think that if only they could get that fruit, then they would be satisfied. The problem is all of us are like this. We have different sacred objects. We believe will make us satisfied if only we could get them. It might be a relationship, getting a certain amount of money, having fame. And either we don't get that object and we're unhappy, we feel that life is lacking, or we do get that thing. And then we realize that it might be good, but it doesn't fulfill us in the way that we believed it might. This sacred object oppresses us, and Christianity offers the good news that we can be freed from it. This good news can be seen in the crucifixion. The Temple of Jerusalem was set up much like the Garden of Eden. There was the place where people could walk around and sacrifice and meet people, and it was called the Court of Gentiles. Then there was the Holy of Holies behind a massive curtain. That is where the sacred dwelt. That is where God was. In Christianity, the temple curtain rips in half, and we realize that there's nothing there. But it doesn't end there. 
then there is the return of what we've lost, but it returns slightly differently. Now the sacred is not an object that promises completeness, not an object that we love, but rather is the experience of depth and density that we get through the act of love itself. We find meaning not in the running from our lack and our suffering and our difficulties, but somehow in being able to embrace them, being in a community where we can share them, where we can talk about them. This is the prestige of Christianity, the experience of finding meaning in the midst of life rather than in running from it. With those very profound words from Peter Rollins, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this week's episode. Of course, as always, I have to remind you to please donate, or at least listen to, support with your time, and if you can, with your money, Revolution Church, pastored by, this is kind of sad, I'll be honest with you guys, though my, really my only friend here in Minnesota, Jay Baker, who is actually best friends with Peter Rollins. So hey, what do you know, small world. Jay is Jay is currently on his Loosen the Bible Belt tour, and you can find out more information about that by going to loosenthebiblebelt.com. You can follow him on Twitter and Tumblr. I believe both. I'm not honestly extremely savvy in social media, but I know that he is keeping everything updated. He's wrapping up the tour now and has actually some other speaking engagements that will keep him from being able to actually deliver his sermon this Sunday when this is released. And as crazy as this is going to sound to you, I promise it sounds even crazier to me. But Jay's guest speaker, who he had lined up to cover for him this coming week, ended up having to drop out and is not going to be able to make it. And so Jay has asked me to deliver the Sermon for Revolution this Sunday. So that's going to be actually my first time ever preaching. I believe that you'll be able to hear my sermon on the Revolution podcast at revolutionchurch.com. They're always put up a week after the sermon is delivered. So that would be a week from today, assuming I end up releasing this on Sunday as scheduled I try really hard to always make sure that this podcast is out by Sunday. Sometimes I release it a few days early, but a week from the closest Sunday to which this podcast is released, just to make it that much more complicated, uh, you would probably be able to hear my sermon on revolutionchurch.com. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to talk about. I'm thinking I might talk about unity in the church and how coming to a new position in your faith, it can often be tempting, I know for myself especially, to want to distance yourself from the tradition from which you came, the tradition that turned you off, the tradition that made you first want to find a new expression of your Christianity. And a big part of the reason that I sought out having Drew on the podcast last week was in an effort to build bridges, not saying that he and I are completely on different pages theologically, but there are definitely things that we disagree on. And he's definitely plugged into a denomination of the church, which I no longer associate with, incidentally, not saying anything negative about Southern Baptism, but it's incidental, and I've explained it many, many times, my personal life story and all that. But I think I'm going to at least partially discuss at least partially touch on 
the idea of unity in the church and not separating ourselves from denominations and expressions of Christianity that we may not necessarily agree with. Um, Because I know that for myself personally, when I stepped away from Christianity and then came back to it, I developed a certain air of holier-than-thou towards those who were, in my mind, the quote-unquote holier-than-thous. And so, ironically, I was doing the exact same thing that had turned me off to the church to start with. And so I think, yeah, I think that's important not to be insular, not to exclusively surround yourself with people who completely agree with you, with yes people, as it were. Yeah, so anyhow, I don't even know if that's what I'm going to talk about or not. But yeah, just some ideas, I guess I'm kind of thinking through. But Jay will be back again the following week. I'm going to be visiting home, visiting Kansas. Maybe I'll do some interviews with my family while I'm there. Who knows? Don't want to make any promises, but that would be great. I'd like to talk to my brother Sam. I haven't interviewed him yet. And interviewing my brother Nate would be great too. Of course, he and I have had plenty of interviews together, co-hosting the Bipolar Agnostics podcast, which, as I've mentioned, is still available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Speaking of iTunes and SoundCloud, you can find the Air of Grievances podcast on soundcloud.com slash air-of-grievances. You can go to itunes.com and search for Air of Grievances. You can go to facebook.com slash airofgrievances. You can go to patreon.com slash airofgrievances to support the podcast. I'd encourage you to go there and check it out, even if you're not going to pledge any money or donate any money. But that's a good way to get connected and to find some links to some videos that I've made and things like that, and to stay up to date on announcements and anything that's going on in relation to the podcast. Of course, I have to ask you to please call me and leave me a voicemail as a favor, please. The voicemail number is 612-460-0364. And I encourage you to please call and leave a message with anything, anything on your mind, any reaction that you have to anything that's said on the podcast. You can yell at me. You can tell me how wrong I am. Whatever is on your heart. So that's how you can get into direct contact with me and be heard on the podcast. So I'll talk to you guys next week. I love you. See ya. Some flash floods in time smoke